Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. For me, a great British castle is a fortress, a palace, a home and a symbol of power, majesty, and fear. For nearly a thousand years, castles have shaped Britain's famous landscape. These magnificent buildings have been home to some of the greatest heroes and villains in our national history, and many of them still stand proudly today, bursting with incredible stories of warfare, treachery, intrigue, passion, and murder. Join me, Dan Jones, as I uncover the secrets behind six great British castles. This time I'm in Cardiff Castle. Today it's bursting with Victorian wealth and splendor, but it also has a history rich in dastardly deeds, horrible executions, and bloody rebellions. It even helped fight off the Nazis. Good morning, have a seat please. Thank you. Thank you very much. For many centuries, Britain had a wild west fertile and full of opportunity, but also lawless, violent and restless. Today we call it Wales, a place famous for music, for legends and of course for rugby. Throughout its history, Wales has been fiercely independent and it's caused a lot of would-be conquerors a lot of problems. And that's why the whole place is studded with castles, from the huge fortresses of the north to the strongholds here in the south, near the Bristol Channel. My favourite of all of them is here in Cardiff. Today, Cardiff is the capital of Wales and one of Britain's greatest cities. It's also the place where Doctor Who is filmed, which is quite fitting, because over the centuries, Cardiff Castle has had plenty of its own incarnations. 
The original castle was built in the Middle Ages, but today's visitors are mostly coming to see the extraordinary rooms inside these Victorian Gothic wings. They were built by the third Marquess of Butte, one of the richest men in the world. He spent a fortune on these lavish interiors at the end of the 19th century. This banqueting hall might look like something straight out of the Middle Ages, but in fact it was built in the 1870s and no expense was spared. This was a time when medieval decoration was all the rage. But what I love about it is that as soon as you step into this room, you feel like you're transported into Cardiff Castle's incredible history. The story of Cardiff Castle begins in 1066 at the Battle of Hastings. Sailing from France, William Duke of Normandy challenged the Anglo-Saxon King Harold II for the throne of England. After a raging day-long battle, Harold was killed. According to the legend, he took an arrow through the eye. On Christmas Day 1066, William, now known as the Conqueror, was crowned King William I. William's Norman army set about colonising the whole of England. They did it with castles, which they built across the land. And when they were done with England, William and the Normans turned their sights westwards, on Wales. But the Welsh weren't just going to roll over the Normans had to do something dramatic to show off their power. And they did what they were most famous for. They built a castle right here in Cardiff. When the Normans got here, they found the remains of an ancient Roman fort built almost a thousand years earlier to protect the conquering Roman soldiers from hostile tribes of native Britons living nearby. You can still see sections of the Roman wall here outlined in red sandstone. Now, the Romans left Britain in the 5th century AD, and forts like the one here at Cardiff were allowed to crumble. But when the Normans arrived, there was still enough left, perfectly located, and just begging to be built upon. Mark, this is a typical Norman castle? This is absolutely textbook, what the Normans were doing after 1066. You've got a mott and bailey. The mott being this great mound of earth we see here, and the bailey being everything else, the wider enclosure. And the bailey is where you have basically all the buildings. So you have your horses within here, you have your great hall, your chapel, your, your rooms where the knights sleep, everything. Uh, and is this what we call the keep? Well, the bit on top, we would now call it the keep. They would have just called it either the mott or the great tower. We've got a stone tower here now, but back in William the Conqueror's day, a wooden tower on top, wooden buildings everywhere. Mark, what would this space have been used for? Well, the mock would have been used for defence if the castle was under attack, for living when the, the Lord was in residence, but also used as a prison. Um, it's one of the things that people tend to forget about the Normans, is that whilst they were very violent in their warfare, when you surrendered to the Normans, they would spare your life. 
in a word, chivalrous, because they had the ability with castles to confine people. You can lock them up and throw away the key, but you don't kill them, you just put them in prison. Cardiff Castle became the power base from which the Normans fought to control the natives of Wales and police the lands bordering England. In the centuries to come, Cardiff would be the scene of savage uprisings, brutal tyranny and blood-curdling executions. But ironically, the first man to fall foul of Cardiff Castle was William the Conqueror's own son. Cardiff Castle was originally built in the 11th century to impose the authority of William the Conqueror and his Norman invaders over South Wales. But bullying the Welsh was relatively easy. What the Normans couldn't do was get along with each other. When William the Conqueror died in 1087, he was survived by three sons. The oldest was called Robert, the second was another William, and the youngest was Henry. All three wanted their father's throne. The next in line should have been William the Conqueror's eldest son, Robert. He was a little, stout man, and his nicknames included Fat Legs and Kurthose, which basically means shorty pants. Now, Robert Kurthose is buried here in one of the most magnificent buildings in England, Gloucester Cathedral. Robert was weak and easily influenced. He'd fallen out with his father several times, and at the time of the old king William the Conqueror's death in 1087, Robert had been banished abroad. It was the middle brother, William Rufus, who was named as the Conqueror's successor and crowned King William II. But that wasn't the end of the family feud. In 1100, William II was killed in a hunting accident when a stray arrow hit him in the back. This enabled the youngest brother to pounce. Robert Kurthose was away fighting on crusades and in his absence, Henry now grabbed the throne and was crowned Henry I. Understandably, Robert wasn't very impressed. Losing the crown to one younger brother, well, that was bad enough. Losing it to a second was starting to get a bit silly. He started raising troops and causing Henry as much trouble as possible. But that was his undoing. In 1106, Robert's armies clashed with Henry's armies at a great battle in Normandy. Robert was defeated and he was captured. And his younger brother decided to put him out of the way for good. That didn't mean death, but the alternative was still pretty bad. Henry locked Robert up and threw away the key. At first, Robert was imprisoned in the West Country, but after 20 years of that, in 1126, he was brought here to Cardiff Castle. By now, he was in his 70s, but he still had nearly another decade of captivity ahead of him. In 1134, when he was an extraordinary 80 years old, Robert Kurthose died, still imprisoned here in Cardiff Castle. 
Now, as the son of one king and the brother of another, he'd have been in fairly luxurious conditions. This was more like house arrest than being locked in a dungeon. He spent his time here at Cardiff Castle learning the local language, and at least one poem in Welsh has traditionally been attributed to him. It includes the line, Woe to him that is not old enough to die. And I think that's an incredibly poignant insight into the mind of a man who saw far more of the inside of Norman castles than he'd have ever wanted to. Robert Curthose wouldn't be the last enemy of a King of England to see out his days in Cardiff Castle, but few of them would die in their beds of old age. Instead, many suffered violent and painful ends as Cardiff Castle entered an era of executions and bloody rebellions. During the 12th and 13th centuries, Cardiff's defences were constantly beefed up. The castle on the hill would have been connected to the southern gatehouse by a huge wall, which split the courtyard, known as the Bailey, in two. In the early 14th century, Cardiff Castle passed into the hands of a family of English nobles called the Dispensers. Under this family, the castle became a feared symbol of English power and authority, and Hugh Dispenser the Younger proved to be one of the most merciless, bloodthirsty and hated men in the whole of Welsh history. Hugh Dispenser was the ruthless, ambitious favourite of England's deeply unpopular king, Edward II, who came to the throne in 1307. Dispenser used his influence with the king to build up a massive power base here in South Wales during the 1320s. He took the title Lord of Glamorgan, which gave him control of Cardiff Castle. And from here, he exercised a reign of terror, tyranny and corruption that would eventually shape the whole kingdom. One of his first acts of diabolical violence and flagrant injustice took place right here in the castle grounds. Dispenser was despised throughout England because of his influence over the foolish King Edward. But he was especially loathed in South Wales. One of his most despicable acts involved a local Welsh hero called Llewellyn Bren. In 1316, bad weather had devastated crops and famine was ravaging the people of Wales. Provoked by the hardship all around him, Bren, a local Welsh lord, rose in revolt against the king. Soon his rebellion was spreading across all of South Wales. When Edward II learned about Bren's rising, he sent 2,000 men into Wales to crush it. Now this was a spectacular show of military force and Bren soon realised the only sensible option was to head quite literally for the hills. These hills, the rugged, windswept Brecon beacons. But even that wasn't enough. With English troops approaching from two directions, 
In March 1316, Llewellyn Bren surrendered. Bren's one condition was that he alone should be punished. Now that impressed his English captors, who thought it was a great display of chivalry. Several high-ranking English lords asked the king to pardon him, but it didn't work out that way. In 1318, two years after he was captured, Bren was transferred to Cardiff Castle, and he fell into the hands of Hugh Despenser. This was a disaster for Bren, because once he'd got him back to his stronghold, it became clear that the vengeful Despenser had no interest in letting Bren go free. In fact, he wanted him dead to send a message to his rival English lords who'd spoken up in Bren's favour, to flex his muscles and assert his power. Dispenser's influence with the king was so great that no one could stand in his way. Without the benefit of a fair trial, with a total disregard for justice, he declared Bren a traitor and sentenced him to be hanged, drawn and quartered. This was a terrible way for an honourable man to go. Dragged through the streets behind a horse, choked with a noose, and then disemboweled while still alive. It was one of the slowest, most savage and agonising deaths imaginable. With a taste for blood and an iron grip on the king, very soon Dispenser, the master of Cardiff Castle, wasn't just terrorising South Wales, he held sway over the whole kingdom. For the next four years, he would be the power behind Edward II's throne. But eventually, his evil deeds came back to bite him. Dispenser's influence had estranged the king from his wife, Queen Isabella, who was in self-imposed exile in France. Now the Queen teamed up with another mighty baron from the Welsh borders, called Roger Mortimer. Together, they launched an invasion of England, overthrew the unpopular king, and put Dispenser in prison. He was sentenced to the same horrific death that he inflicted on Bren, to be hanged, drawn and quartered. It was said that when he was in prison, he attempted to starve himself to death but there was to be no escape. Here at Reading University, there's grisly evidence that may help us to understand the savagery of the death that Dispenser suffered. Mary, where do these bones come from? Well, so they were discovered um, at Holton Abbey in Staffordshire when they were excavating the inside of the church. And why do we think that these might be the remains of Hugh Dispenser? So the bones, we have um, C14 dating, so they date around 1300s. And there were very few candidates for, if this is hang drawing and quartering, for that practice during that time. Um, one was Hugh Dispenser. So I contacted the archivist in charge of um, the abbey and the burials there. The archivist responded that Hugh Dispenser, he had been executed and his wife had petitioned for his head 
and a few vertebrae and one of his thigh bones. And it took me a few minutes to realise that the elements of skeleton that I was missing on, on my individual were his head, his thigh bone and some vertebrae. And it just seemed too much of a coincidence, really, not to be true. But probably the most obvious thing that we see are um, one of the neck vertebrae at the top and there's a clean cut mark straight through the vertebrae. And this is a very clear sign of beheading. If we move down the spine, these are um, just higher up in his chest okay. vertebrae and they have been sliced down the middle. Oh, I see. Straight yeah. across by a sword or an axe. So it's as if somebody has been cut this way, vertically. Yes, yes down, okay. the, down the side of the skeleton. So when you look at this vertebrae in particular and you turn it over, there's also a very clean slice um, across the middle. So he's been cut this way and cut that way, so he's been quartered. Oof. So he would have been alive when he was being dragged um, by the back of the horse, and then he would have been put on the ladder, and he would have not been hanged the way we can think of hanging. He would have actually been choked, so that he would have been alive when they were eviscerating him. Um, and probably he only died when they took him down from the ladder, and then they beheaded him. So it was a very political execution, a very public execution. So all the evidence is pointing towards this being the skeleton of Hugh Dispenser? I think there's a weight of evidence to suggest that this is Hugh Dispenser, yes. Wow. Hugh Dispenser is remembered as brutal and evil, but also for reaping what he sowed. This stained glass window in the castle shows him with his coat of arms upside down. It's a sign of disgrace and shame. With Dispenser's gruesome death, one of the most violent periods in the history of Cardiff Castle had ended. But in the coming centuries, the castle's defences would be tested to the limit by some of the bloodiest rebellions in British history. By the 14th century, Cardiff Castle had come to symbolise the power of English kings over the people of Wales. That power was wielded by the lords of Cardiff Castle, such as the cruel and corrupt Hugh Dispenser. As a result, the castle was always a natural target for rebellion. At the start of the 15th century, the last great Welsh rising against the English crown began. The Welsh national hero Owen Glendower claimed the title Prince of Wales and led a violent revolt against King Henry IV. In 1403, Glendower and his men burned the city of Cardiff and placed the castle under siege. Eventually, with the castle running out of food, down to its last 24 cannonballs and a few bags of gunpowder, it surrendered, but not before it had been badly damaged. It was a stunning victory for Glendower and the rebels. The English were humiliated, and although they eventually regained the castle, it took years for Henry IV to subdue Glendower's rebellion across South Wales. But when order was restored, the English took terrible revenge. The English passed a series of laws called the Penal Laws, which stripped the native Welsh of their legal rights. 
Welshmen were forbidden to carry weapons, own property in English towns, speak their own language or hold public office. This was a form of apartheid. If you were within this castle's walls, you were a person with rights. If you were outside, you barely had any. The draconian laws that followed the defeat of Glendower's rebellion may have been harsh and repressive, but they did succeed in subduing the population of Wales and a period of relative peace followed. A succession of aristocratic owners developed the castle buildings around the old Norman keep. In Tudor times, these new wings were further expanded, but by the 17th century, Cardiff Castle was once more in the firing line, as a new and deadly conflict began to grip Britain. In 1642, increasingly bitter hostilities between King Charles I and his enemies in Parliament erupted into a civil war that tore Britain in half. The King's supporters, Cavaliers, battled the Parliamentary Army, the Roundheads, led by Oliver Cromwell. At stake was the whole system of British government. Should the country be ruled by headstrong kings, or a dangerously radical parliament. During this long struggle, Cardiff Castle was besieged several times. It was held first by the parliamentarians and then by the royalists. As fighting with cannon and guns spilled into the streets around it, the castle was badly damaged, and no wonder. Gunpowder was now being used extensively, and it changed the nature of warfare. Cannons could wreck castle walls, and defenders and attackers alike were using small arms called muskets. To get a taste for this new form of warfare, which challenged Cardiff Castle's defences, I've come to have a go at firing a few weapons from the period myself. When did muskets appear on the battlefield? They take over in the early 17th century and they are the dominant weapon on the battlefield until the 19th century. And we've got some muskets here, they all look very different. This is a matchlock, which is the most common type that's mass-produced, and it fires with a piece of match held in the serpent mechanism here. This is a wheel lock. It's more expensive and therefore rarer than the matchlock and it has a, a flint in the firing mechanism here which does the firing for you. And this is a carbine, this is a cut-down version of a flint lock, really useful for cavalry because you can tote it by your saddle and dismount and fire with it. And, and what do they all fire? They fire lead balls like this. This is an actual Civil War musket ball and you see it's half an inch across, solid yes. lead. When it hits you, the entry wound is half an inch across the lead will then spread out and impact with your body. So the exit wound on the far side of you is going to be about six inches across maximum. You're going to have a horrible death. Even the guns are dangerous. They're totally inaccurate. Well, I think we should have a go at firing them. Let's go for it. I suggest you have this. Thank you very much indeed. The upmarket version. Yes, it feels very smart. Feels I'll take like the heavy, ponderous, more dangerous <laughs> one. Now, Colin, you're the man who's going to make sure we don't blow ourselves up. I hopefully, hope. hopefully not blow yourselves up. Right, well, talk me through how this musket works. Well, this is a wheel lock, and now you've got to put there in the main charge, 
operative, one measure of gunpowder. Goes down the barrel? Down the barrel. That's it, tip her down. Right, now this gun is full of gunpowder and I'm a slightly more scared than I was. Oh, you have every reason to be, sir. I'm going to give you that. Right. Now, if you take a bit of wadding... OK. ..put that down the gun. Mm -hmm. And this is the ramrod. This is the ramrod. Hence, ramrod straight. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right, see, I do know a bit. This isn't going to blow up when I do this, is it? <laughs> All right, let's, let's see. see. Let's see. Tell my wife I love her. That'll do. Put, replace the uh, ramrod. OK. And that gun is now ready to go. Keep it away from your face. Don't well, point it do. at anybody. So I take the key and give it a bit of a turn. Yeah. There we are. Are we about to give fire? I think Back so. To your front present, gentlemen. What does that mean? Point it, it in front point of you. It means point it. Point it. OK. Give fire! More like I think it. it fired. It did fire. I heard something. Yeah. And mine fell out. I'm dead. Do you want to try touch firing it? If I hold the barrel for you? Yes. Give him fire. <laughs> wow. Perfect. After the battering it took in the Civil War, Cardiff Castle was lucky to be left standing. The keep on the hill was badly damaged. And it might have decayed into obscurity and ruin, but for a wedding that changed the fortunes not only of the castle, but of the whole of Cardiff. In 1766, an heiress called Charlotte Jane Windsor, daughter of an aristocrat and MP, and the heir to Cardiff Castle married a wealthy Scottish landowner, Lord Mount Stuart, the man who would become better known as the first Marquess of Butte. Together they set about transforming the castle that Charlotte had inherited into a comfortable Georgian mansion. They employed the most famous landscape designer of the day, Lancelot Capability Brown, to redevelop the castle and its gardens. Brown infuriated many locals when he demolished the massive Bailey Wall and swept away a number of ancient historic buildings to create a sweeping English landscape garden. The Marquises of Butte also transformed the town around the castle and it all started with coal. By the 19th century, the Welsh valleys became studded with steelworks and coal mines, like this one, known as the Big Pit. Coal was the super fuel of the Industrial Revolution. All the new technology was powered by steam, and to make steam, you need coal, and plenty of it. Now, as well as owning Cardiff Castle, the Butte family owned vast tracts of land here in South Wales. In the early 19th century, it was discovered that all this land was lying on top of rich seams of coal. The second Marquis of Butte quickly realised just how valuable the coal could be, and he exploited it to its fullest, changing Cardiff and its castle forever. The Butte family made Cardiff Castle and the city around it what it is today. And to turn all that coal into hard cash, someone had to dig it out of the ground. 
everything the Buttes created was based on the hard labor of local people. And the best place to see it is quite literally at the coalface, at the bottom of this mine. How long has this mine been here? How long have people been coming up and down? Well, the shaft, it was first sunk in 1860, not quite to the bottom, in 1880. They made the hole a little bit deeper to where we go in today, right at the bottom. So there have been men coming down this shaft for, what, 120, 130 years? Yeah, maybe yeah. more. Okay, more. Right, welcome to Pit Bottom. Here we Actually, are. Actually, 90 metres now underground, yeah? 90 metres. Wow. Okay, now just turn your light on for me. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So how many miles of tunnels do we have? They reckon up to 26 miles of roadway. When I was a kid, my grandparents used to bring me here, and it's still incredibly atmospheric to be down in these tunnels. But what you really get when you're here is the sense that this was hard, brutal, back-breaking work. It was hot, it was dangerous, and in the 19th century, there was precious little legislation to protect the people, men, women, and children as young as five years old, who were toiling away in these tunnels. But what you've also got to remember is that the painstaking work dragging coal out of here up to the surface is what turned Cardiff into an industrial powerhouse and made the Butte family of Cardiff Castle one of the wealthiest families in the world. All that coal and iron from the valleys needed to be exported to markets around the world. So the second Marquis of Butte built Cardiff docks and transformed the town into one of the biggest ports in the world. Butte's ambitious development led to a boom in the city's industry and population during the middle of the 19th century. population of Cardiff exploded from less than 2,000 in 1801 to 150,000 a century later. By 1880, Cardiff had transformed from a small town into one of the world's busiest ports, with its docks handling more traffic than New York. With the vast wealth they accrued, successive generations of Buttes transformed the castle into a palatial family home. And soon, Cardiff Castle would become famous for the extraordinary richness and opulence of its interiors. Yet despite the centuries of peace and prosperity that Cardiff had enjoyed, its castle would be called once more into military service. Fortifications originally built in the 11th century would be tested by 20th century invaders, the Nazis. From the earliest times, Cardiff Castle kept watch over the badlands of Wales, keeping the unruly natives in check. 
Under the Tudors, the walls were strengthened and extended. Then a family of Scottish nobles, the Buttes, not only embellished these buildings, they redeveloped the docks, transforming Cardiff from a small town on the edge of a fortress into a major modern city. In 1865, John, the third Marquis Butte, reputed to be one of the richest men in the world, decided to give Cardiff Castle a makeover. He asked the architect William Burgess to produce a report on the state of the castle with a view to refurbishing it on a grand scale. The report was one of the most important documents in this castle's history, turning an old fortress into one of the most extraordinary Gothic palaces in the whole of Britain. Well, this is a pretty incredible room. Which part of the castle are we in here? We're in the clock tower, which is the, the first part of the tower to be done as part of the rebuild. The theme is one of time, and if you start looking up into the ceiling, you will see the signs of the zodiac up there, and each of the four seasons. What was this room used for? This one is called the winter smoking room, so you'd think, you know, they'd come in here for cigarettes and cigars and port after dinner. Lord Bute experimented with drug tobacco, and William Burgess smoked opium. But that wasn't unusual for Victorian artists and designers. But it would explain a lot of the, uh, the design in this. Well, in this it's very room. easy to run away with the idea of this being a, an opium-induced fantasy. I think that's overstating it. It, it. it isn't. But certainly it's that period of imagination and dreams and Lewis Carroll and all of that sort of thing. And they just don't know where to stop because every surface is covered. So, whose room is it that has mirrors all over the ceiling? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid you can't miss them, can you? This is Lord Butte's bedroom. Bit of a puny bed, isn't it? It's a single bed, as you can see. But actually, this was really more of a dressing room than a bedroom. All of this must have cost a fortune. Yeah, but Lord Butte had a fortune. He had an income of about £300,000 a year. This is in the 1860s. I mean, millions and millions of pounds. But he was using industrial money to put black gold coal into real gold on the ceiling here. Butte was creating a pleasure palace incorporating all the luxuries of the day. There's a wonderful bath which of course is all plumbed in. There's a working lavatory here, one of the earliest um, flushing loos in the city and also other things. I mean there was central heating in the house, there was electric light. We were the first house in Wales to be lit by electric light in 1883. So this is medieval, but with all the mod cons. Yeah, it's seeing the Middle Ages by moonlight. It's a very romanticised idea of the past, but also making sure that you are absolutely comfortable. right at the top of the castle now. What was this room used for? Well, that's a good question, really. I don't know, in fact. I think it's, it's one of those secret worlds that Lord Butte had at the tops of so many of these towers. Little personal, private spaces all for himself, but also reflects his interests. I mean, all over the walls, there's this incredible religious imagery with Hebrew 
writing underneath it. Was he a particularly religious man? Oh, he was. He was a Roman Catholic convert, so he converted when he was 21. But look at the details that are pure medieval. Look at this wonderful fountain. The water would have come out of the mouths of these fish. They're being held by beavers. This is all done with a, a great zest, a great imagination, and a great sense of fun. Despite the religion, Bute didn't take the creative process that seriously. This castle is meant to be enjoyed. But in some ways, it's a miracle that any of this Victorian splendor survives today. Because in the 20th century, a new enemy took aim at Cardiff. And this enemy threatened to wipe the city and the castle off the map. In 1939, Britain declared war on Nazi Germany. One year later, cities across Britain suffered devastating bombing raids. In Cardiff, 33,000 houses were bombed and almost 400 civilians killed during the course of the war as the Nazis targeted Butte's docks. That death toll could have been far higher, but fortunately for the people of Cardiff, the castle came to the rescue. This castle's walls were built to withstand the worst the Middle Ages could throw at them. But when the Blitz began in Cardiff, it was realized they could probably stand up to German bombs as well. Here in the medieval ramparts, four entrance holes were cut, leading to a network of tunnels deep below the rock. They were close enough to the city centre for people to flee here when they heard the air raid siren. And you can still explore them today. The castle survived the Blitz. Shortly after the war, the fifth Marquis of Butte inherited the castle. But with his family fortunes having declined substantially, he found himself struggling. With a heavy heart, he sold off the last of the family's property in Cardiff and gave the castle and the landscape parklands around it as a gift to the city. It severed the Butte family's 181-year connection with Cardiff, but gave the city a lasting legacy. Wales isn't the Wild West anymore. The only battles fought here today are on the turf of the Principality Stadium. But this fortress stands as a vivid reminder of the tenacity, the tirelessness, and the defiance of a people who used a castle to make a city. Next time, I'm in York. The castle where kings like Henry VIII made a bloody example of their enemies. Where one of the worst religious massacres in British history took place 
and where the most notorious of all highwaymen met his end. And that's in two weeks as the new series Secrets of Great British Castles continues. Later tonight at 10 here on Channel 5, the story of one of the funniest men on the planet, Peter Kay. Before that and after the five news headlines, Britain's greatest bridges continues with a structure that spans one of the most menacing stretches of water, the Menai Straits. <laughs>